Hello, and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Shadi Mehrfarzan, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Mark Huddleston, who served as the president of the University of New Hampshire from 2007 to 2018. He also served as president of Ohio Wesleyan University, senior the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Delaware, and as a faculty member at SUNY Buffalo and the University of Delaware. Today, Dr. Huddleston lives with his wife, Emma, in Vermont and Florida, and is a self-professed good pilot and bad golfer. Dr. Huddleston, we're so grateful to have you with us today. I can't think of a more interesting time to talk about the future of higher education. Hi, Shadi. It's great to see you. So uh, I just had the privilege of listening to a lecture of yours earlier today, and it was ominously titled, Higher Education in America, an Existential Crisis. It's been a tumultuous past six months for higher education, to say the least. But were there problems you noticed with higher education even before the COVID-19 situation kind of threw the world into disarray? There were. In fact, I think the central thrust of my talk um, was that all of the factors that people are now wrestling with in spades really were there before COVID hit. And that what COVID did did was uh, not cause but clarify um, stresses that uh, higher education has been experiencing for decades, really. So perhaps how has COVID-19 accelerated these pre-existing trends? Well, it's just uh, it's just made everything much more uh, immediate and more of an emergency. I think uh, we had we had talked earlier in the uh, question and answer period on the uh, in the lecture about a lot of the experimentation that American colleges and universities have been doing. Very creative. Um, uh, uh, Michael Crow at Arizona State is probably the leading example of that, but he's hardly the only only one who is uh, is trying to get it their institution to think of new and creative ways to deal with um, uh, revenue and different ways of teaching and different ways of using their facilities. But um, those things are playing out on one time scale, which is a regular normal human time scale where things take a while to uh, run their course. And COVID is operating on a completely different time scale where it is in our face immediately right now. And um, most critically for colleges and universities, uh, uh, what they're experiencing is an almost, not a complete shut off of their revenues, but uh, the taps have been closed pretty far, uh, but their expenses have not gone down commensurately. If anything, their expenses have gone up. So it is, um, it's, it's really been just a nasty confluence of events. Yeah, so a lot of, um, we've seen that a lot of uh schools recently have been talking about the financial difficulties they've been facing as a result of COVID. And as you said before, these financial difficulties have been kind of progressing for, for a while now due to increased costs and then changes in um, the students who attend college. Um, so how do you think that maybe higher education institutions can best prepare financially and logistically to maybe deal not only with these, to deal with these financial shocks, um, not only to their personal funds, but also maybe the in the way that the ramification may affect like their students directly? Well, I, I wish there were one simple answer that I would make a lot of money as a consultant talking to college presidents all around America. I don't think there is. I think that um, the most important thing we can all do, faculty members, staff, college presidents, students, is uh, recognize that um, the way we've always done things, which is a refrain I heard a lot for years, is not the way that we're going to be able to continue to do things. That uh, somehow we have to be able to hold on to the, the nub of what makes higher education special. 
but do that, deliver that uh, in a way that is more cost effective and that um, um, allows us to continue to, to exist. If, if we don't, uh, the future really is very bleak. You know, I, I guess I'd expand on that and say that um, uh, we have to rethink almost everything we do. Uh, we have to rethink how we um, deliver instructional material. We have to rethink how um, we use our our campus facilities. We have to um, rethink how we deploy uh, our most uh, precious resources, which are our faculty and staff, and ask ourselves if we're using them in, in the most uh, uh, efficient and effective ways. You, really, it's really a kind of blank sheet of paper um, approach to re-examining everything about the institution. And it's a really, really hard thing to do in universities because universities have been around for a very long time. They're, and uh, as much as I love them, and I do, I don't know anyone who loves them more than I do, they are, they do have a tendency to kind of barnacle encrusted because of their age. And um, it's, uh, it's hard to persuade people that change is really necessary. I thought often that that was my main job as a college president was to uh, show them, show my, my colleagues the burning platform that they were all, we were all standing on, that uh, it's not just a theoretical possibility that um, the wolf is at the door, but we, we really have to tackle this now uh, if, if we want to uh, continue to exist. That's a really good point. Um, so kind of moving off of that, um... A lot of students kind of, um, and maybe anyone really looking at a college, uh, really kind of values uh, a college these days sometimes by statistics such as the endowment, um, how much students, how much schools are spending per student, um, it, statistics like that. So like how can schools maybe with larger endowments, the Harvards and Dartmouths of the world perhaps, uh, kind of um, how, how do they uh, I guess, stand in comparison to these smaller schools or perhaps public schools with like these smaller endowments? Um, and yeah. how do you see those two um, types of schools kind of navigating this kind of landscape? Yeah, there, there's a faculty member at Harvard, speaking of Harvard, <clears throat> whom I respect a great deal, named Dick Chait, who is a, uh, I think now an emeritus professor in the, in the School of Education. And he once told me um, that the way he thought about colleges and universities uh, was using the metaphor of a barbell. And if you imagine a barbell, it's got two big bulbous ends and a thin bar in the middle. And uh, Dick said that uh, that's kind of how colleges and universities in America appear to him. At one end of the barbell, there are the Dartmouths and Harvards and Yales of the world that uh, are pretty well off and uh, frankly don't have to worry about very much when it comes to um, finding revenue and staying afloat. At the other end of that metaphorical barbell are places that are really in deep, deep uh, doo-doo. And they have um, uh, bleak prospects and um, nobody probably is going to want to write life insurance policies on them. In the middle of that, uh, that barbell for Dick Chait were arrayed um, most of the other institutions in the country. A little bit like one end, a little bit like another. They're probably not immediately um, uh, threatened with going out of business, but neither are they so well-to-do that they can be um, blasé about their operations. <clears throat> I've thought about that metaphor a lot over the years, and I've, I've come to think of it more 
as a barbell painted by Salvador Dali. So that at one end, there is a pretty uh, recognizable, uh, ordinary bulbous uh, bell, but at the other end, there's kind of this drippy, huge uh, 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 structure that's uh, uh, sliding all over the floor that's a lot larger than the other end. And that's where the, the trouble is these days. It's that, it's that growing uh, kind of um, scary looking pile of colleges and universities that are really much larger in number than the, the Dartmouths and, and Harvards. If, and if I were a student um, contemplating going to school, I think as an individual, that's a real smart choice to make. Go someplace that's got resources that can provide you all the opportunities you can possibly take advantage of. I'm, I'm, I'm envious um, of you and, and happy for you that you have those opportunities. I worry for students who don't have those same uh, opportunities available. I think you can still get a wonderful education at uh, many of those other institutions, but they certainly aren't as rich in the broadest sense of that term. And for some students who are uh, consigned to institutions that are really, really impoverished, I'm not sure they're really able to get a very good education. So uh, I th you think you have to look at it differently from the perspective of individuals. One makes certain kind of choices, but you also have to look at it from the perspective of a system and how can we as uh, caring Americans figure out a better way to uh, to make this work that doesn't at the same time uh, undercut its existence, which was kind of the uh, paradox that I presented in my lecture. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Um, so I guess when I talk, we're talking about um, this, this problem of funding that is happening nationwide um, in colleges, universities of all shapes and sizes. Um, when it comes to the conversation of what, how we, how the government can step in or how we can step in to kind of um, stop this this lack of funding perhaps right. um, should do you do you believe as someone who's worked in administration that it'd be best to offer this funding directly to students to maybe have them uh, reduce the the cost of four-year college perhaps similar to what people propose with the free four-year college plan or directly to the institutions who are facing these costs directly um, yeah. and can use this to well, my former colleagues as college presidents will be very angry with me for the answer that I'll give, but I don't think the money should go directly to institutions. I think it should go to students. I actually believe in market principles. I think that if students are given the resources uh, and the freedom to make choices, that they in aggregate will make wise choices and that they will um, wind up bringing their, uh, their portable resources to institutions that will serve their particular needs. Um, and I, I do think that's the right role, by the way, for the federal government. I, I would be a strong proponent of uh, increasing significantly the, uh, the Pell program and target that aid to students and families that really need it and make it um, meaningful enough, large enough that um, uh, it'll, it'll make a difference in their lives and in the lives of the institutions to which they bring that aid. Um, currently, I don't think that uh, the Pell is rich enough to do that. I think that, ironically, students at the lowest ends of the uh, socioeconomic spectrum probably have more of their 
full needs, financial needs met, then students in the middle, lower middle class, middle class students, they're the ones who are really crunched because they, they're not eligible for those federal programs, they're not eligible for other kinds of aid often, and uh, families wind up taking on just enormous uh, amounts of debt in order to uh, see them go to colleges that they want to, and that's, that's tragic. Back a few years ago, at least I remember this, and maybe it's, it's come back today due to COVID, um, but a few years ago, there was a lot of hype around MOOCs, massive op- open online courses like Khan Academy or Coursera, which were kind of supposed to reinvent higher ed and kind of break this yeah. exclusive club of four-year liberal arts colleges. Yeah. Um, so pre-COVID, it seems like maybe a little that had kind of died down, but we've seen this kind of reemerge this past year as many students have considered gap years, ways to kind of continue education without having to pay full tuition for online school. Um, so do you think that uh, we're, see- we're seeing kind of a really more serious consideration of these kinds of programs? And do you think they'll ever really pose a threat to typical four-year colleges? Yeah, MOOCs. MOOCs, they were called. Massive Open Online Courses. Um, yeah, yeah, I do think that they will get another little boost of energy. I think that... Um, there was a lot of experimentation, and you mentioned some of them that went on eight or ten years ago, and I think enthusiasm began to wane as it became hard to figure out how to um, uh, really operationalize what some people saw as the um, uh, the assets that they represented. You know, how do you um, uh, arrange for testing, for instance, in order to? Uh, certify a student has uh, uh, gotten the credit that that he or she was uh, was studying for in a particular course, um, and I also think that you know technology for most people was kind of lagging the the opportunities that. Uh, uh, as good as it's gotten, it's still not as good as some of the very best stuff out there where it's like virtually being in the same room with um, uh, with, with other students and with the, with the faculty member. It's still kind of klutzy, but I think it's still got a lot of potential. And I think that um, once we all get over our Zoom fatigue and uh, the epidemic passes on, I think that people are going to go back and look at it a lot more seriously. I, I think I said during the, the lecture or maybe during the Q&A that we've all been kind of tossed into the deep end of this uh, remote learning. Uh, I know my wife, who is um, a, a middle school teacher and now is sort of a consultant in that, that space, works with a lot of teachers who, in, in the K-12 through um, uh, realm, who are struggling with this right now. And it's really, really hard. It's hard enough with college students, even harder with, with uh, you know, eight and nine-year-olds trying to get them to pay attention on a computer screen and keep, keep, their, uh, keep their behavior in line. But um, I think it, it's, it's both um, interesting in a, in, a, in a real sense to see what's going on. And I think it, there, are, there are real promises out there, but it's, we're being forced to do it in such a collapsed period of time that people are frustrated. And uh, I think it will take a period of time for us to step back, evaluate what worked, what didn't, uh, where do we want to make investments? Um, how can we imagine hybrids that are um, uh, appropriate to different circumstances? And I, I think we'll get there. And yeah, so to go back to your original question, I still think there's a lot of uh, a possibility there. I used to say that um, uh, you know, everybody hates uh, statistics courses in college. I, mean, I rarely heard anybody say, I love my statistics course. But 
I bet there is one person in America who was just an incredible, masterful teacher of statistics. Funny, engaging, uh, really gets people to learn it and understand it. That's where a MOOC would shine. You know, you find that one star of college statistics, put him or her on the screen, and that's the way to learn statistics. You don't have to be in a small group setting um, uh, interacting face-to-face with one another to learn um, what a regression equation is. And uh, so I think that's where that kind of learning will, will really come into its own. Yeah, someone who literally took class on regressions last summer virtually. <laughs> How much fun was that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, all right, yeah. Uh, so that said, uh, what kinds of colleges do you think will weather the pandemic and remain successful or as successful as they used they were beforehand? Um, and what kinds of colleges are going to perhaps flounder? Yeah, well, um, that's that's an answer. Well, I guess we're going to get to see sooner rather than later. My my hunch is, and it's not a very original answer. But my hunch is that those that have got some resources to fall back on, um, everybody may get a little bit of a bailout. We don't know. I mean. They, 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 Higher ed leaders have been banging on Congress's door trying to get more funds to uh, uh, hold things together, and that'll delay the day of reckoning, or at least um, make fewer people subject to the day of reckoning. But, you know, uh, absent that, absent some kind of major uh, bailout, I think the institutions that survive are going to be the ones that have got um, have got an endowment, that have got um, some money in reserves, as we call it in the nonprofit sector, some money squirreled away that they can uh, they can rely on. Um, I was about to say maybe institutions that are in states that are more uh, kindly disposed to higher education and that are you know more supportive. And but the problem is most states are bankrupt right now too, and there are not a lot of resources there to be had, even if uh, the states are kindly disposed. So it it really probably comes down mostly to. Um, institutional reserves and those institutions that have made themselves most attractive to students who can get away without having to discount their tuition uh, in a a manner that a lot of them are doing. How will the shift that um, we've been seeing to online learning maybe impact the gap between wealthier and low-income college students? And maybe even related to that, like you just discussed, given that we're seeing that it's people maybe in the middle who are really struggling to pay a higher tuition, um, how might it affect them? Yeah, I really think, I hate to say this, but I think it's true. I think we're, we're probably moving in the in the medium long term toward a kind of uh, two-track, two-speed um, higher ed system in the United States. I think that um, the top, what, 50 institutions, you know, pick a number, that are well-endowed, that are... Um, highly selective that can charge almost whatever they need to charge in tuition and have their brand be worth it for students to pay. Um, I think they're not going to change a whole lot. I think that they're going to continue to uh, be able to hold uh, small face-to-face classes and ivy colored buildings and covered buildings and uh, uh, be pretty much like they always have been. I think that the pressures on almost everybody else are going to be in the direction of consolidating uh, uh, resources, moving as much online as possible um, to try to cut uh, costs for faculty. Although, you know, one of the big um, myths, I think, about higher ed is that most 
most of the expenses in, in faculty costs. And that isn't true. When I was at UNH, I, I think I did the math once and figured out it was less than 20% of my operating budget was, was uh, related to faculty. A lot of it, um, we, we talked uh, in the Q&A period, I think, about the obligations of institutions to take care of students, right? An awful lot of the operating budgets of most colleges and universities are bound up in exactly that. And um, I think one of the reasons I I really kind of keyed on that question was I think we're going to revisit that. And if colleges have no more responsibility for uh, your uh, physical health or mental health or safety and security than the local movie theater. Um, they're just places where, and again, I'm not, now I'm not talking about Dartmouth or Harvard or places that have, have got the resources and have a very different living learning environment. But if colleges become places that are simply dispensing modules of knowledge in some kind of online format, then there's probably a case to be made that they're going to divest themselves of a lot of those other responsibilities, which will make them uh, very different, but more viable entities. Great point. So just to wrap it up, um, based on kind of all of this, um, especially this, all of these, these trends being really um, just heightened with COVID-19, um, what do you hope that higher institution educations, higher education institutions, excuse me, whether small or large, private, public, what do you hope they take away or will have learned from all of this? Wow. Um, well, I think they'll all take away the, uh, the reaffirmation of how important the work they do is. And uh, secondly, maybe how fragile the enterprise is and relatedly, therefore, how hard they have to redouble their efforts to address an uncertain future. Maybe fourth, uh, the extent to which, well, yeah, Harvard and Dartmouth are different in many respects. We are also kind of all in this together, uh, not only as institutions of higher education, but as Americans. We all um, we all have a stake in the vitality of this sector. I think we've been through a long period where for reasons both good and bad, we have come to view almost all um, things that we consume as individual goods and services, as private goods and services. And we've sort of lost sight of things that are truly public goods. And uh, I think that the COVID epidemic will probably reinforce the extent to which uh, a vital system of, of, of higher education, public and private, is a, is a genuine public good in America and that we as a country cannot long survive without it. And on that important note, um, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Huddleston. You bet. Enjoyed our chat. Um, yes, did I. Uh, and to our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.